0: In an article published by The Independent on July 24th, 2013, the headline read this, Royal Baby, the Prince Meets His People in World Media Frenzy. This was the announcement of the baby of the prince and duchess of Cambridge, William and Catherine. Here's what the article said. It opened up with this. It was the moment the whole world had been waiting for. With a joke about the new baby having more hair than his father, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge presented their newborn son to the waiting press at the front of St. Mary's Hospital. The royal couple posed for the pictures, waving and smiling at the cheering well-wishers from the steps of the Lindo Wing. The duchess held her son first, and the couple looked relaxed and smiled broadly as the world's media captured the moment. All of that for the announcement of a prince born to William and Catherine. But it was 2,000 years ago that a baby infinitely more eminent, infinitely more royal, and infinitely more glorious came into the world. Only his announcement wasn't global. There wasn't some kind of media frenzy trying to capture the moment. There weren't well-wishers smiling and cheering at his birth. No, this baby came to earth in humble means. By humble people. Not born of a royal family. In a palace. Although he was the king of kings. Not born of wealth and prosperity. Although he owned the entire world. And not born of anyone popular or prestigious. Although everyone will know who he is. Because every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, this king came to the earth in humble means and by humble people. And that's what we saw last week and what we're going to look at this morning as we're again focusing on the humility of Christmas. Last week we saw Zacharias and Elizabeth and we saw how God used this humble couple to birth John the Baptist who was the forerunner for the Messiah. Zacharias and Elizabeth were a humble couple. They walked rightly before God out of a heart of love for him. And they were living in a time in Israel's history when Israel's religious system was all about self-righteousness. and prideful people who thought that their good works were going to get them to heaven. Zacharias and Elizabeth knew that their good works couldn't get them to heaven but only faith in God who was going to send the Messiah. They knew that salvation was by faith alone. And at this time, for 400 years in Israel's history, up to this point, God had been silent. God was silent with Israel. There was no new revelation that was given to the Israelites for 400 years up to this point. In fact, it was during this time that Israel had turned their backs on God. As a nation, they were an apostate nation. They had created a works-based system there in Israel. And yet, it was in the midst of this terrible time in Israel's religious history that God saw the humility of this couple who had true saving faith in him. God began to speak again to Israel. And he sent the angel Gabriel to speak to Zechariah and give new revelation that he and his barren wife Elizabeth were going to have a son. God began to speak again to Israel, to this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But it wasn't just this humble couple that God used during this time in redemptive history. There was another humble couple this couple was similar to zacharias and elizabeth in that they were not a part of a royal family they weren't some big shots or well known in the land of israel they were a couple of no names poor insignificant they were humble teenagers in israel who truly worshipped god Not just with some outward rituals like the religious people around them, but with a humble and contrite heart. And it was these people whom God used to bring forth the Messiah into the world. This couple was Joseph and Mary. Last week we saw the humility of Zacharias as we saw the humble barren couple. And this morning I want us to focus our attention on Joseph and Mary, and what we're going to call the humble betrothed couple. The humble betrothed couple. Another humble couple in the land of Israel whom God is going to use in redemptive history. And so if you haven't already, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and let me begin reading in verse 26. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, notice that Luke tells us that this is happening in the sixth month. And we would ask the sixth month of what? What are you talking about here, Luke? Well, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth has been pregnant for six months up to this point. Elizabeth, she was old in her age. She had been barren her whole life. And she's now pregnant with a son, John the Baptist. Now, if we were Jews back in these days, in Luke's day, and we were reading this text here before us, with an understanding of what life was like back in these days, this would have caused us to stop and wonder why God would choose to use such insignificant means to bring forth the most important person in all of history. In fact, as we work our way through this text, I want to show you how God used humble means and humble people to bring his humble son, into this world. And so we'll begin here with our first point. Notice first the humble place. The humble place. Luke tells us that God sent Gabriel, notice what he says there, to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, if you're reading out of the, the NASB, as I am here, and a few other translations, you'll see that the Greek word there is polis, and they've translated it as city. City. But many other translations have translated it as town or village, which is more like what Nazareth was like. It's not wrong to translate this word as city, but understanding a little bit about Nazareth, we would call this place more of a town or a village. In fact, Nazareth was a small town with just a few hundred people living in it. Just over a year ago, we took a trip down to Kansas, to Mead, Kansas, out in the middle of nowhere. There's a pastor friend who was there, him and his family, and he was being ordained as a pastor, and so we went to go visit him. And on our drive there, we drove through many towns few of them Cunningham Kansas that has 470 people living in it or Mullenville which only has 250 people living in it many other small little towns that we just drove right through you blink and you miss it that was Nazareth that's what Nazareth was like just a small town a small village It was located about 75 to 100 miles north of Jerusalem. In fact, it was at Jerusalem in the temple where Gabriel appeared to Zacharias. We saw that last week, right? In Jerusalem, in this big city where the temple of God is, where the Jewish system is set up to come and and worship God there. A city that's full of people. Zacharias is there serving in the temple. And Gabriel comes then and appears to him. But it was six months later that Gabriel appears in Nazareth, a small village in Galilee. Now this town was so insignificant that in John chapter 1, after Philip had met Jesus, he went and told Nathanael, and said this we have found him of whom moses and the law and also the prophets wrote jesus of nazareth the son of joseph and nathaniel said to him can any good thing come out of nazareth you see nazareth is so meager and insignificant that it's never even mentioned in the old testament you won't find it it's not mentioned in the old testament It wasn't a popular town with lots of people, which is why we wouldn't necessarily call it a city, but more of a town or a village. It wasn't some great prominent place that people wanted to visit. No one wanted to go and stay in Nazareth. In fact, in those days, the Judeans who lived down in the southern part of Israel around Jerusalem, they looked down on anyone who was up from the northern part in Galilee. If you lived in Galilee, those down in the south around Jerusalem, they looked down upon you if you lived up there in Galilee, up in the northern region of Israel. Which is why Nathanael even says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? But what's interesting about Nathanael is Nathanael was a Galilean himself. So even as a Galilean, who's looked down upon by those down in the southern region of Israel. Even this Galilean knew how insignificant and unimportant Nazareth was. Just a little town. And yet this is the town where Mary and Joseph lived. In a humble, lowly town called Nazareth. And so that's the humble place. Let's look next at the humble people, the humble people. Who was it that God chose to use during this time in redemptive history? Well, notice what it says in verse 27 that Luke tells us Mary was engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Now, we should pause right here and ask this question. Who was Joseph? Who was this man? Well, Luke tells us here a little bit about him. He tells us that he was of the descendants of David. Which means that he is in the kingly line. He's not royal family in the sense that he's living in a palace at this time. He's not living in Jerusalem around the temple. But he is in the kingly line. He's a descendant of David. And therefore, as the adoptive father of Jesus, this means that Jesus was... A part of David's lineage. A kingly line. And that means that Jesus has the legal right to rule and reign on the throne of David. Being the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant given in 2 Samuel 7. The covenant that God gave to David. That somebody would sit on his throne and rule and reign forever. Who is the fulfillment of that covenant? It's Jesus Christ. You see, in in Israel, everyone knew who David was. They all knew that David was the greatest king ever in the history of Israel. But who is Joseph? Who's this guy? Who is this man, Joseph, that, that Luke mentions here? Well, Matthew tells us a little bit more about Joseph. Matthew, in Matthew 119, he tells us that Joseph was a righteous man. Just as Zecharias and Elizabeth were righteous, not because of their own works, but because of their faith in God and the Messiah who was to come, the same is true of Joseph. He was a righteous man. Matthew also tells us a little bit more about Joseph in Matthew 13.55, but Matthew doesn't tell us that Joseph was a king. He doesn't tell us that he was someone significant in Israel. Instead, Matthew tells us that Joseph was a carpenter, a carpenter, a worker of wood who lived in Nazareth, just a normal guy like the rest of the people in Nazareth. No one significant, no one special. Just your average carpenter. Just a plain old carpenter. And in fact, Jesus would have taken on Joseph's occupation as a teenager and would have become a carpenter himself. That's how it worked in those days. Whatever your father did, as a son, you would go and Do the same occupation. And so Jesus would have grown up as a carpenter, learning these carpentry skills from Joseph. But you can see that this family that Jesus is born into was no one special, no one of high rank, no one of prestige or of high status. Just a normal family, normal people. Joseph didn't have a reputation with the media. He didn't have people following him around, wanting to know what his life was like. He was just a humble man who worked as a humble carpenter in a no-name village called Nazareth. But it was this humble man whom God would use in redemptive history to bring salvation to the world. And at this time, notice Luke tells us in verse 27 that Joseph was engaged or betrothed to a virgin named Mary. Now, what was this betrothal or this engagement period that Luke is telling us about here? Well, in Jewish practice, the, the betrothal was arranged by the parents when the girls were about 12 or 13 years old. So That's how old Mary is. She's just a young teenager. The betrothal period lasted about one year, and then the man and woman were married at the end of that one year betrothal period. This betrothal was a a binding legal arrangement. Unlike our modern day uh, engagements, this was a binding legal arrangement that was taking place. And therefore, because it was binding, because it was legal, only death or divorce could sever the contract that was made as they were betrothed. During this one year, the couple would be referred to as husband and wife, and if the girl's betrothed husband had died, the girl would be considered a widow. She would be considered a widow. That's how binding this betrothal was. However, the couple did not live together. They didn't live together during this time. They didn't have sexual relations during this one year period. In fact, during that year, the girl was to prove her faithfulness and purity to her husband. And the boy was to go and prepare a home for his bride-to-be. Then when that year was up, there was a seven-day wedding feast. In which the husband and wife began living together and then consummated the marriage. And it was during this time that Luke tells us that Joseph was betrothed to a virgin named Mary. But who was Mary? Who was this teenage girl? Well, Mary was another insignificant woman living in Nazareth, no one special. Just an insignificant woman. In fact, as you look at how Luke introduces us to Mary, notice that he doesn't give us the same commendations that he gave us when he announced to us Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you look back in verse 6 of Luke chapter 1, back in verse 6, Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But notice what he says of Mary in verse 27. She was a virgin. And she was engaged to a man named Joseph. That's it. That's it. Nothing special about her. She's just an insignificant woman. And although she was righteous because of her faith in God, Luke doesn't give us anything to indicate that she was a prominent woman. She was just a normal girl, just a virgin girl engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. So nothing here in this passage would set Mary apart as someone noteworthy. Nothing would. In fact, someone who knew the culture back then would read this and they would say this, Who cares about a young virgin girl in Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Who cares about her? Well, God does. God cares about her. And he's going to use this humble woman in a very significant way because she has been chosen to bear the Messiah. She's been chosen by God. Now, how do we know that Mary was humble? I mean, she doesn't have the same commendation as Zacharias or Elizabeth or even of Joseph as being a righteous woman. Luke doesn't give us a full description of her here. So how do we know that she was humble? Well, look over at verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. Verse 46, this is Mary's magnificat. We call this the magnificat because in Latin, the first word in the song of Mary's is the word magnificat, which means to magnify or to exalt. And Mary is singing out here a song to magnify or exalt the Lord. And that's why we call it Mary's Magnificat. And notice what she says there in verse 46. She says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. You see, Mary did not see herself as someone important. She didn't see herself as important. In fact, she saw herself as what? As a bond slave of God. Literally a slave of God. That's how she saw herself. In fact, that's the word that she uses there. In the Greek, that's the word the word bondslave there is the word doule, which is the feminine form of the word meaning slave. She simply saw herself as a slave of God. And even back in verse 38, she says, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. She's a slave of God. She didn't see herself as some important woman that God should use. Instead, she saw herself as an insignificant woman ready to be used in any way that God pleased. And she expresses in verse 47 and 48 her wonder and amazement that God would choose to bless her and use her so that He could bring about salvation for His people. Notice what she says there. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior for He has had regard for the humble state of His bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. She's in wonder. She's in amazement that God would choose to use this humble girl. You see, socially, she was an unimportant village girl from Nazareth. That's all she was. She wasn't anyone special. She was betrothed to a common man named Joseph. Just an ordinary, humble woman who wanted to be used by her master in any way that he saw fit. But spiritually, she showed her humility and that she knew that she was a sinner who needed the grace and mercy of God to save her. How do we know that? Look at what she says in verse 47. Notice what she says there. She says, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my what? What? Savior, and God my Savior. You see, Mary had a high view of God and a low view of self. A high view of God and a low view of self. She was aware of her
1: utter unworthiness to be used by God. But she also understood God's marvelous mercy and grace that He shows toward humble sinners just like she was. And it was this humble woman that God chose to use in redemptive history to birth the Messiah. And so that's the humble place and the humble people, Joseph and Mary. Let's look now at the culmination of the humility of Christmas as we look now at the humble person. The humble person. In fact, take your Bibles and turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We have for months now been working our way through Philippians and even Philippians chapter 2, I must admit. But it's been a wonderful, wonderful study as we've gone through the humility of Christ. You see, God was using all of these humble means and these humble people because he was sending forth his humble son to come to save humble sinners Like you and like me. And we see the humility of Christ in many ways in Philippians chapter 2. In fact, look at verse 8. And notice what Paul tells us there in verse 8. He says this, being found in appearance as a man. Let's stop right there. Now if we were to read this, we were just to to start at verse 5. And we go down through verses 6 and 7. And we come upon this in verse 8. And we read this. If we understand the context here and what paul is talking about when we come to this point right here in verse eight this should shock us this should shock us because back up in verse six we read of christ who although he existed in the form of god what paul is telling us in verse six is that from all eternity from all of eternity past jesus christ the second person of the Trinity existed as God. He is and he's always been God. In fact Colossians 1:15 tells us he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And then John tells us in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. What is the scripture declaring to us here? That Jesus is the creator God. He is the creator God. He is the God who created all things at the beginning with the Father and the Spirit. And yet as the creator, he became a man. He became a man, and he put on flesh, and he became one of us. Charles Spurgeon says, A great marvel is the incarnation, that the eternal God should take into union with himself our human nature, and should be born at Bethlehem, and live at Nazareth, and die at Calvary on our behalf. He was the creator, and we see him here on earth as a creature. The Creator who made heaven and earth, without whom was not anything made that was made, and yet He lies in the virgin's womb. He's born and He's cradled where the horned oxen feed. The Creator is also a creature. The Son of God is the Son of Man. The Creator of the universe was born of the virgin mary on that christmas morning and lived as one of us god who is god of all eternity took upon himself flesh and he lived as one of us the creator of the universe was born as a baby and became dependent upon sinners like mary and joseph And as a child, he submitted himself to the care of this humble, yet sinful couple. The God of all creation did that. He humbled himself, and he did that. Listen, church, there can be no greater act of humility than that, than what Jesus did for us. God to become man is the greatest act of humility ever he went from being on the highest throne in all of the universe to a sin cursed world to live with sinful people like you and me as a man he put himself under the same restrictions that you and I have because of the fall the God of the universe creator of the universe put himself under the same restrictions that you and I have because of the fall Think about this. Although he was completely perfect, he still felt the results of the fall. As a man, he became hungry. As a man, he got tired. As a man, he felt pain. As a man, he endured suffering. As a man, he was poor and he had no place to lay his head. As a man, the king of kings and lord of lords, he came as a little baby who was wrapped in cloth and placed in a feeding trough of animals. Talk about humility. That's our humble savior. And there's been no one in all of history more humble than this man. And yet he did all of this knowing that he would be rejected by his creation and ultimately be led to a cross to die. In fact, look again at verse 8. Notice what Paul says there. Paul says, he continues on, and he says he humbled himself. He, Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Stop right there. You see, Christ's humility wasn't just seen in him being born as a man on Christmas morning. His humility didn't just stop by him taking on flesh and becoming a man. His humility didn't just stop after he... Laid his head to rest in that manger. But his humility continued to be displayed in what he did as a man. And what did he do? Notice what Paul tells us here. He became obedient. He became obedient. Jesus didn't stop being humble after he left the manger. But he would continue to grow as a boy and as a man. And he was always obedient to the will of his father. Whatever it was that his father desired for him to do, he was always completely obedient to the will of his father. As a man, he submitted himself to the will of the father. And he did whatever it was that the father desired for him to do. He put himself under the law of God. As a man, he put himself under the law of God and he was the only one who could completely obey the law of God. And yet he did it as a man. One commentator says, there is no humility like obedience. There is no humility like obedience. Why would he say that? Because obedience comes from a humble attitude that says, I will do whatever it is that you command me to do. And that's why Jesus was able to say in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That is to the father. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That was Christ. That was his heart. A humble, obedient heart. His mind was set entirely on God's interests, not on man's interests and not even on his own interests, but completely on the Father's interests. And with an attitude of humility, Christ always obeyed the Father. But notice Paul doesn't stop by saying he just became obedient. But notice what he says there in verse 8. He became obedient to the point of what? Death. To the point of death. The perfect God-man put on flesh. And felt the ultimate effect of the fall. Death. But he didn't die of old age. He didn't die of an accident. He didn't die from some illness. His death was like no other man's death. Because his death was a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. It was willing, a willing death. It was purposeful, a purposeful death. No one forced him to die. No one forced Jesus to die, but he went on his own initiative as the sacrifice for sinners who trust in him. And listen, his death wasn't just any old death but it was the most humiliating death that anyone could ever die notice paul tells us the at the end of verse 8 he says even death on a what on a cross death on a cross you see we like to honor the cross rightfully so right we love to honor the cross we put crosses on our necklaces we put crosses on our earrings we put crosses up on our walls in our in our homes our offices we put crosses up on the walls of the church and we honor the cross because of who went to the cross but that's not how the cross was seen in jesus day no one would take a cross and wear it on their neck no one would take a cross and put it up in their home Because for Jews in those days, the cross was not only the most torturous of deaths, but it was the most shameful and humiliating way that anyone could die. And listen to this. Although the Jews had it out for Jesus, and the Romans nailed Jesus to the cross, they didn't force him to go to the cross. No one forced him to go to the cross. But Jesus went willingly to the cross and gave up his life for sinners. You see, no one took his life from him. The Jews didn't take his life and the Romans didn't take his life. But he willingly and humbly gave up his life as a sacrifice to save sinners like us. In fact, let me show you this. Turn over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This is the great passage that we know of the good shepherd. Jesus being our good shepherd. And in John chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus says this. He says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for who? For the sheep. And then in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for who for the sheep. And then notice what he says in verse 17. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. What is Christ telling us here? Did they take his life from him? No. What did he do? He willingly laid it down for his sheep. He laid it down for us. Christ willingly and humbly laid down his life as the sacrifice for sinners when he went to that cross. In John 19, verse 30, it says this, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. They didn't take it away from him. He gave up his spirit. He humbly laid his life down. And all who repent of their sin and place their faith in him can have the free gift of eternal life that he offers as the one who sacrificed himself for our sins. You see, you may be here this morning and only think about Christmas as celebrating a little baby who laid his head in a manger. And you hear the story of Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the angels and you hear Christmas hymns throughout the Christmas season. But listen, Christmas is more than just a cute little story about a baby. Christmas is about the good news of the God who humbled himself to save us from our sins. That is why we celebrate Christmas. We like to think about trees and and lights and ornaments and gifts under the tree. I know our kids can't wait to get home to open the gifts under the tree. But listen, church, Christmas is about the greatest gift of all. The gift of salvation that that humble little baby came to give to all those who would trust in him. The true meaning of Christmas is about the humble Savior, and God of all creation, who came down to earth as a humble little baby so that he could humbly obey his Father and then humbly go to a cross and make the sacrifice for sins, a sacrifice that none of us could make to pay for our sins. You see, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned against a holy and righteous God, an eternal God, a God who is holy and just and infinite, And we have sinned against an infinite God. And therefore our sin deserves an infinite payment. But Christ came. And he took upon himself flesh and became one of us. And he willingly and humbly went to a cross. To make the payment for us. A payment that none of us could make. And he laid his life down. And he gave up his spirit when he said, it is finished. Out of obedience to the Father. And because of his love for us. And if you're here this morning and you don't know, this Jesus, this Jesus that I'm talking about here, that is revealed to us in his word, I urge you to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And you can have the free gift of eternal life that he offers. The greatest gift that anyone could get on a Christmas morning. The gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our humble Savior. God man, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh to die on a cross for sinners like us. We thank you for the gift that he offers to all who would repent and put their faith in him.
0: It is the greatest
1: gift that anyone could ever receive. And Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning that does not know you. Father, I pray that you would awaken their hearts. That you would cause their dead hearts to become alive. That you would grant them repentance and faith. That they might turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, who came as a little baby on that Christmas morning to save us from our sins. Father, we thank you that he did not stay dead on that cross. But we thank you that he rose again on the third day. And we celebrate that even here this morning. On Sunday morning. The morning that Jesus rose from the dead. And we thank you that he is alive today. And we thank you that he's coming again. To make all things right. Father, we await his return but until he comes, help us to be faithful in living out the commandments of your word as your slaves, as your bond slaves. May we learn from this humble couple, Joseph and Mary, and their lives and all that they did to serve you. Father, may that be our humble hearts as well. And may you receive the glory and the honor and the praise for it all. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jim is going to come here in just a moment.